Game of Thrones Season 7, Episode 2, Stormborn is over, but we're just getting started on our Episode 2 deep dive here on Post Show Recaps. And now here are the two guys who have no issue whatsoever bending the knee. I'm Rob Sestrino, here with Josh Wiggler. Josh, how are you? I'm well. I wouldn't say no issue. I actually do have a chronic knee pain you in, my, bad in knees. My, my left <laughs> knee. Like, I'm fine to, like, bow to anybody who seems to be, like, in a position of authority. And if I don't bow, I'm probably toast. So I will definitely bow, but uh, not without some pain. Not without some faint pain in my left leg. Okay. Well, Josh, happy to have you back here uh, with me. I know you had a, a busy week. Uh, you were down at Comic-Con. Yeah. How was the con this year? Comic-Con was fun. That was my first Comic-Con in a while. Uh, first time covering it for The Hollywood Reporter, which was very fun, very exciting. Uh, great. I don't know how much you were following along with any of that stuff, Rob. Uh, the Westworld action was very fun. Uh, Always. Got to- Got to go black hat at the Westworld activation yeah, I saw in that. San Diego. That was that was really great. So there's a write up about that on THR. Uh, also, some Game of Thrones activation action. Did you see me become uh, Jon Snow, Rob? No, I did. I saw you updated your Twitter picture, but can you tell <laughs> us about that? <laughs> they had like this activation where you would go. Uh, activations are like the new rage at Comic Con. Apparently, this is new since uh, last time I was there. The at least hottest thing at San Diego yeah. Comic Con. <laughs> His yeah. activation. Oh, Lord Stefan, I didn't realize that we had you on the podcast. Uh, yes. Yeah, they have they have like all of these interactive exhibits and the Game of Thrones exhibit was basically you moved from station to station taking ridiculous videos and pictures in front of replicas of props and sets from Game of Thrones. So I got elected king in the north. That was really exciting. Uh, I got to hold Longclaw and slay White Walkers in like a 360 degree video where I did like this really awesome jump cut. It was very, very athletic and impressive, I would have to say, for myself. Uh, so, yeah, you can check all of that stuff out. I think that's on my on my Instagrams, which I never plug around okay. these parts. I'll take a look at there. it. And they yeah, just give good. you, like, the finished video, or they post it online? Yeah, they send they send you, like, uh, like you would go around from station to station with basically this, uh, this like, um, interactive watch, almost, where you would, like, tag in and out of stations, and it would log uh, the videos and the photos that you were creating, and it would associate with your email, and the next day you get all of your media sent to you in an email. And it's a very happy email, uh, assuming that you're happy with your media, which I was. I was thrilled. <laughs> I thought it was great. It was very fun. All right. Speaking of uh, media that we're happy with, episode two of uh, season seven of Game of Thrones uh, really was great. Had a lot of fun with uh, Stephen Fishback right after the episode. Been following everything that uh, you've been writing. Of course, we're going to get into our feedback show coming up midweek. So get your emails and feedback into us at got at postshowrecaps.com or leave us a voicemail, postshowrecaps.com slash voicemail. And make sure you subscribe to the podcast at postshowrecaps.com G-O-T iTunes to not miss any of that. But Josh, I'm excited to hear your take on all of this because uh, you and I have not gotten to talk Thrones yet this week. No, we haven't had a chance to talk Thrones yet this week. Action-packed Game of Thrones. You know, season seven is the shortest season so far. It will not be the shortest season of the entire series because the final season is going to be six episodes. There's only seven episodes this year. And the whole like kind of, you know, the, the silver lining from David Benioff and Dan White has been 
Don't worry, fewer episodes, tons of action, tons of things going on. Uh, there is no decrease in budget, just decrease in episode number. So each episode should be popping with something that you're going to talk about. It may, maybe even many somethings that you're going to be talking about all week long. Uh, this episode certainly delivered. We're only two episodes deep into into season seven so far, and we already have like a massive naval battle on our hands. Like if this is the pace that we're getting for the rest of the season, it's not going to be boring on Sunday nights. Yeah, dense episodes. And Josh, in the preseason, you and I did a preview podcast where we talked about what was going to be coming up for Cersei. And we kind of felt like, okay, she's drawing dead. She has no chance. It, what could she do? We tried to speculate about a dragon horn, which does not seem like it's going to be the case. But suddenly, so, yeah. through two hours of this season, it feels like Cersei has all the momentum. She's got a lot of momentum on her side right now. And yeah, I do think that that was the thing. And the show even acknowledged it. There's that great scene in the premiere where Jamie says to Cersei, like, if you're looking at at us on paper we're drawing dead we're a clear clear last place in this in this whole in this whole mess uh and that's certainly what your read was that was my read and my josh uh (laughs) and i think that that was you know that was a fair thing to think that that was you know the way that it was going to break that it's just the odds are against cersei she's got wildfire and what else she has no allies she has allies now uh she's got euron Greyjoy on her team and euron made short work of danny's fleet you know, there's Legends of Silence is the name of uh, Silence is the name of Euron's great ship. Uh, it is supposed to be one of the most fearsome ships in the entire world of ice and fire uh, of all of Planetos, as it is sometimes mm-hmm. called. And we certainly saw that come to bear. Like, I don't think that anyone's going to forget that huge kind of like jaw dropping onto the onto Yara's ship and Euron just hanging onto the side of it and just screaming bloody murder and charging into battle anytime soon. I think that's going to be a pretty memorable moment for a while so i think we were wondering like who are the allies on the board maybe you're on Greyjoy, but how much can he do turns out he could do a lot turns out he can basically single-handedly defeat danny's entire fleet or much of their, her her fleet i doubt that that's the entire thing otherwise it's going to be a kind of uh you know they're just gonna be trapped on dragonstone all this time so there's got to be some more ships out there but yara is captured sand snakes are dead Theon has regressed and he's in the ocean. So yeah, big victory for Team Cersei this week. Yeah, and so let's talk about Theon and ultimately where he goes from here, Josh. Uh, He had that moment where he was set up to be Yara's protector and he ended up just uh, jumping overboard. Where do you think things go for Theon? I'm I'm so at a loss with that. Uh, and I love that. I love that I kind of have no idea where they're going to take things with Theon. And I also really love that this is what happened with Theon. It would be so great to see, you know, Theon rise up and protect his sister and fight Euron, even though it probably would not end well for Theon. You at least want to see him, you know, have that hero moment and protect the sister that went out and tried to, to save his life once upon a time and has taken him back and has trusted him. Uh, and he can't do it. He can't do it. He's got, you know, he's got post-traumatic stress from his time with Ramsay Bolton. I think that that's very realistic. And I think that's one of the things that we love about Game of Thrones is when it feels emotionally true, when it feels uh, grounded in that human way uh, where people don't just grab the Valyrian sword and charge into battle because it's the right thing to do and it's the satisfying thing to see. Sometimes they drop their sword and they jump off a ship because they're terrified. And that's Theon to a T. And I think that just because he put on 
you know, the clothes of an Iron Islander didn't mean that he washed Reek completely off. To be fair, I think it would take a lot of work uh, that to, to, to remove that Reek stench entirely. So I think to have shades of that still in place for this character, I think that's very true to the character. But where he goes from here, I don't know. Do you have any, any thoughts on that? No, it's really hard to point yeah. to a direction that he's headed because, I mean, is he going to go back to Danny? I mean, it seems like that he was not particularly uh, close to her or to Tyrion or to Varys, anybody over there. I mean, uh, that he has connections with uh, the Starks and certainly Sansa, but he's pretty far from Winterfell. Unless you think that he's going to end up having this turnabout where he's going to sort of like trail Euron back to King's Landing and attempt to rescue Yara like how she once upon a time tried to rescue him from Ramsay but I feel like that that is a long shot. Well it's a long shot to succeed. Um, I don't think that it's a long shot for the show necessarily to see Theon in King's Landing and hunting down Euron or trying to find his sister. I think you could see some version of that. Um, I don't know that it would be successful. Uh, just because I don't, I don't know that I really have confidence in in Theon's ability to to execute on something like that. One of the things that I've been thinking about for a while now, since um, you know, since the the fifth book was released, since A Dance of Dragons, as back in 2011, believe it or not, was the most recent book in this series. I've been thinking that Theon's story has been kind of trending toward this guy's gonna, you know, I don't think that he's going to die. I think that he's been through so much that I think to kill him on top of everything, maybe there's an argument that it's mercy but i think that this is a guy who is going to, to to live with the ghosts of his past and with that in mind if there is such a thing as a night's watch at the end of this whole thing i think you see theon there or at least i see theon there so how he gets there uh that's you know another story entirely i think other things would have to pass before that happens but that's kind of been my long view of the character that at some point that guy takes the black and um I don't know how that happens given the context of where Theon is right now, but that's the, that's the only thing I can think of in terms of Theon's final steps uh, is that he's either dead or I think he's on the watch and, and maybe this is going to push him closer to that, but he's got a long way to swim if he's going to get to the wall. Josh, we saw some sand snakes go down in the battle on Sunday night. Do you feel like, you know, the show got such criticism about the way that it handled everything with the Dorn storyline back in season five? We saw a lot of that cleaned up in the season six premiere, but the sand snakes were still around. Do you feel like, does the show take some measure of uh, glee in how they are offing everybody in Dorne? Uh, probably to some degree. I don't know if glee is the is the right word. Just the I think shot that, of, of sand snakes dangling from the masthead. It, do, it does feel like, see, like we listened. We mm-hmm. know that you guys didn't like these characters, so now they're gone, and how do you feel about that? Uh, I can't imagine that you would talk to anybody on the HBO team and you would get the answer of yeah that was really exciting for us to to like fix that mistake and to to kill them off in such gruesome epic fashion i think at the same time you probably wouldn't get this answer as well or maybe i'm you know underestimating their candor uh i do think you gotta you gotta imagine that they know that the that the doran story never really worked the way that they wrote it off at the beginning of season six with Alaria and the sand snakes just taking over and then not being seen again until the season six finale and now we have two of the three 
three Sand Snakes are dead by the end of the second episode. I think that the show absolutely had to know that these characters weren't working. What I think is somewhat gleeful is certainly Euron Greyjoy takes a lot of delight in, in you know, dispatching of these two warriors. And I think it's kind of interesting that Euron was another character that we were looking at as kind of problematic back in season six. Like a lot of hype for this character. This is somebody who is going to be uh, a real rock star as a villain. He is going to be somebody who enters the scene and strikes fear into the hearts of a lot of these characters and hopefully the audience as well. And it kind of landed with a little bit of a thud. I think that there was, you know, some some costuming hiccups. I think that it just never really was sold well, uh, the whole Euron thing last season. And now to have that character... For me, he's working pretty well. He's a very compelling and magnetic force on the show right now. To have that be the guy that destroys the Sand Snakes and removes that part of the story uh, from the grander fabric of Game of Thrones, I think that that's kind of fascinating, that you have like one problem character now becoming a successful character by taking out two problem characters. Josh, I want to talk with you a little bit about the dragon defense system that Kyburn is working on in King's Landing. Because I was you love the crossbows. You the crossbow love the crossbows. <laughs> a little bit in terms of, you know, you got this moving target that how are you going to hit that? This isn't like Rickon running in a straight line that you, know, you and I could hit with a crossbow. I mean, this is a dragon flying through the air. I don't think you're going to be able to move that crossbow around to be able to hit a dragon uh, that's breathing fire but you are more bullish on the dragon crossbow a little bit and I hate that (laughs) I'm not I'm not you know I'm not bullish on the dragon crossbow with any sense of satisfaction I think that it it does feel a little weak Um, but the more I thought about it the more I I don't think that it it comes completely out of nowhere as a symbol Uh, I think that there is something Joffrey like to Cersei's appearance and demeanor these days she is you know ruthless she's merciless her hair is super short right now she's wearing the throne she's she's wearing the crown rather she's on the iron throne i think that there are some joffrey sensibilities to cersei these days and on top of that what was joffrey's favorite toy back when he was alive he loved his crossbow he loved using that thing so i think to give cersei this gigantic crossbow with which to potentially take out one of the most important factors on the show, you got to imagine that the dragons are going to be huge eventually, both literally, physically, and in terms of their role in the war against the White Walkers. If you have Cersei in place with this, you know, this this weapon that does have some resonance within the Lannister family as she is becoming more and more like her eldest son, I think that there's something to chew on there. Uh, I think it would also be pretty weak to just see her just like knock the dragons out with a crossbow. I do think Kyburn says that there are a lot of them that are being made. He's talking about, we have like all of the best artisan blacksmiths in King's Landing working on these. I don't think it's just okay. the one Multiple crossbow. crossbows, not just I think, one. Yeah. I can't imagine that they're like pouring all their money into that one crossbow. And if that's the case, then man, uh, that's not good. Not a yeah, not a great. Someone's ripping them off if that's just like all they can afford is just the one. Yeah. So I think that there's probably going to be a few. Another piece of connective tissue between the crossbow and the Lannister family. I believe that's also the weapon that Tyrion used against Tywin Lannister when yeah. uh, Tywin ended up going down. So I guess there's some history with the crossbow in uh, Lannister culture. So I think when you take that in mind, um, when when you think about that that this is a thing that has resonance within the Lannister family. And you're absolutely right about that. That's exactly how Tyrion kills his father. 
probably pointing in the direction that that crossbow is going to do some damage, if yeah. not against a dragon, then against something, uh, and very likely a dragon. You know, you can't imagine that we're going to close out Game of Thrones without losing at least a dragon, if not all of the dragons potentially. And this could be a way to do it, and that would be that would be awful. That would be that'd be really terrible. What if um, what if all of mankind rallies together, Rob? And Cersei's like, all right, let's kill some White Walkers. I'm joining forces with you guys. This seems like a decent idea. And then she double crosses them when they're all fighting at the wall and they're fighting the White Walkers. And she decides this is her time to take out Daenerys Targaryen. And she shoots Drogon with a giant crossbow and Drogon slams into the wall and destroys part of the wall. And that's how the White Walkers come in. What do you think about that? Is that a possibility? Boy, that's like a real WWE heel move where she says she's working with them and then ultimately just uses this as an excuse. And then what happens? The Night's King comes in and kills everybody? Yeah, and then it's kind of Cersei's fault. And then you just kind of have to, you know, another thing to blame Cersei for. I thought you were going to say that they end up needing her crossbow to kill the White Walkers. Just to shoot the Night <laughs> yeah. King in the face. Yeah. That's how they end up taking out <laughs> because the White the Night Giants. King, right. Yeah, the Night the Night King is a zigzagger. So, you know, they gotta be really careful how they how they aim that thing. Uh, I wanna talk about the Citadel and the second week in a row where we had a uh, graphic scene for Sam and him taking apart Jorah's grayscale. Josh, uh, could you explain exactly how this is going to work? Because I wouldn't think that you, you think people would try. Oh, let me just cut off the grayscale. Yeah, I was uh, I was kind of surprised when the Archmace was like, you should have cut off your hand a long time ago. Like uh, this is zombie rules like that would have stopped yeah, the infection. Like Herschel. You, know, you know, maybe Jorah should have uh, should have thought about that. Uh, you know, it's just a forearm. You know, he could have he could have knocked that thing off. He would have been fine. Um, yeah, like you just have to wear a, uh, you know, you have to wear like a really fortified suit with gloves and you just like pick off the grayscale and apparently that's going to cure it. That's that's going to be it. You and I were talking about, you know, devouring dragon glass yeah. to, to possibly cure grayscale. And that was the big theory of the week following the premiere. And so much for that, I guess. I don't know. Do you think that this is actually going to work? Sam picking off the grayscale piece by piece, as nasty as that is to even say and to remember that imagery do you think that that's going to be enough to cure jorah mormont well that's what i wanted to ask you i mean is that an oversimplification is there also some sort of uh like maester work that's going into like is there like a salve that he's putting in there as well well he has this ointment that he says that he's then going to apply to like the raw skin that's underneath the the grayscale scabs to use uh steven's favorite word scab mm-hmm. uh you know i think i think maybe there it has some magical medicinal property to it you know maybe there's something uh something involved with that but the procedure hasn't been you know implemented in a long time according to the archmaster because it's too dangerous and the person who studied it actually ended up contracting grayscale so i don't know i think it's a very untested procedure i feel like it would be feels like kind of weak if this is the way that we solve Jorah's grayscale and we just completely take grayscale off the table. What was the point of having Jorah go through this if you really just have to, you know, shave it off and put some cream on there? 
You know, I well, just feel like that's kind of odd to me. Could Jorah potentially be now indebted to Sam in some way? Because now for Sam to get back to the action, I almost feel like that he might need somebody to help him navigate what's going on. Him and Gilly had all to do to get down to the Citadel with baby Sam. If now a rejuvenated Jorah could sort of be his guide to take him to Dragonstone or take him back to the north, I think that he he could use some help between all of the potential adversaries he could run into along the way. Yeah, and I think it's really easy to see like Jorah is going to be the guy who wields Heartsbane, the Valyrian sword of House Tarly that Sam took from uh, from Hornhill last season. I love the character combination, and I and uh, I really love the the connection through the late Lord Commander Mormont, and I think that that's one of the really cool things that. Game of Thrones is paying off this season, just like the little histories between characters and bringing some of those echoes from the past into louder volume and focus this season. So I, I really do like that connection between Sam and Jorah. Uh, sp- I spoke with John Bradley again this week. Every time that John Bradley is going to have like a really nasty scene on Game of Thrones, I'm going to reach out to that guy. Uh, it seems like at this point we're trending every week. So I, I think that he. Th- this is something that he was really excited about too. Is just the idea of putting Sam and Jorah in the same space, and that these are two characters that. Make Maybe you wouldn't really think of together, but I think actually do ultimately work pretty well together. Uh, and I really loved those scenes with Jorah and Tyrion when the two of them were traveling together. I think Jorah being not necessarily a man of few words, but he's a pretty straight shooter. He's a pretty practical guy. He's not a big thinker. You know, that's not his number one skill set. And to pair him with a real intellectual, like a real bookworm, the way that Tyrion was and the way that Sam is, uh, I think that's a great, uh, great character combination for Jorah. And I like that with Sam. So I'm excited to see where they go. And I, I do wonder, does, is this, you know, is this the path for Sam to Daenerys? Like, does he end up at Dragonstone so he can supervise the creation of dragonglass weapons with his citadel wizardry? You know, is that going to be a move for Sam? So I'm excited about this one. Uh, you know, I love Samuel Tarly, Robin. Uh, I, I always have. But I, I do think sometimes he's tangential to the story, and I do think that he is becoming more essential this season. I think that that's kind of cool. What about, speaking of Dragonstone, Melisandre showed up and talked about the prophecy of the gender-neutral royal person who was promised. Yes, I loved that. I think that that, was, that, was, that felt to me like a real wink and a nod towards the book-reading crowd who have been debating like who is the prince who was promised for years and years and years now. So that's the, that's the, the translation that at least Daenerys uh, walks away from that interaction with at least initially that it's the prince who was promised and Missandei is the one who corrects her. It's actually uh, it's prince or princess. Um, and I don't think that that has ever been brought into such uh, clarified focus in the in the fan community and to have that on the show and Tyrion just be like, yeah, that doesn't really roll off the tongue. I thought it was a really, really kind of a fun inside baseball moment. Josh, do you have a strong take on the prince or princess who was promised? Because I think that the interesting debate for me between John and Danny is that John does have this reluctance about it. Like for John, it's almost like too much when people talk about him in those terms. We see him grappling in season six with, you know, why did I come back? What is the plan for me? He doesn't really seem to understand why him out of all people. But it's weird because Danny doesn't seem to have that when she hears those things about him, even when she hears that, oh, actually, it could be interpreted as the princess who was promised. She's like, yeah, 
I like that more, where she really wants this prophecy to be about her, where John is very conflicted about it potentially being about him. Well, let's see how how long that holds for, because I don't know that Daenerys really understands the stakes of what Melisandre is suggesting. I don't think that, you know, Melisandre doesn't come in and say Night King and White Walkers and like really sketch out what is the threat beyond the wall. So I think when Jon Snow arrives at Dragonstone next week, and we've seen that in the preview already, and let's just take a moment to start feeling the hype for that. I mean, that's so far the most anticipated scene of Game of Thrones, uh, as far as I'm concerned, is the first meeting of Jon and Danny. Uh, even just hearing Jon Snow say the words Daenerys uh, in this episode was very, very exciting stuff. Um, I think that it could be, it, it could be, she could feel some reluctance. You know, she really has her eye on the the Iron Throne and taking back her birthright. And, you know, she talks in the beginning of this episode about this doesn't really feel like a homecoming. So she's really fixated, I think, on following in her family's footsteps and reorganizing the seven kingdoms under her rule. And if she hears that you got to put that on side because uh, on the side, because if you don't address what's happening with us at the wall, none of this is going to matter. I don't I don't know how readily she's going to accept it. So we have to see how that plays out first, I think, um, just in terms of the, the reluctance issue. But in terms of the, the prince or princess who was promised makes total sense to me that it applies equally to John and Danny for a long time. Like if you if you had to say that it only applied to one, I would have said Jon Snow because he is, of course, he's got Stark blood in him. And that is ice. He also has Targaryen blood in him, and that is fire. And the books are called A Song of Ice and Fire. Uh, And that has so far been mostly unexplained and really left to the reader's imagination of what that means. And it's referenced once in the books, and it is still not clear what that means. And to me, it always meant that it is, you know, whoever is going to be the most heroic person in this story or whoever is the most central person in this story, this is the song of them. Uh, So I think that that, for me, had meant John for a while, but I think you could also transpose that to John and Danny, who both represent, you know, John is ice and Danny is fire. Uh, there's another aspect of this, though, Rob, that deserves some scrutiny is that there is a, a part of the prophecy or a prophecy that is at least tangential to this one that goes, the dragon has three heads. Sure. So we're currently talking about two possible prince or princesses who were promised. But is there a third? And does anyone stand out to you as like a third person to kind of, uh, I don't know, round out this triforce of power uh, or wisdom or courage uh, <sighs> against the great threat that is marching against the wall? Sure. And I think we're going into uh, Internet theory uh, territory right now. So if you are especially sensitive to that, maybe you want to tune out for uh, the next two or three minutes. But I feel like that the conventional wisdom says that Tyrion would be that third head of the dragon. And the best I've heard this articulated was on a uh, recent episode of the Binge Mode podcast, uh, which are great from The Ringer, where Jason Concepcion ended up really putting out the theory that Tywin ultimately is not the father of Tyrion, that the Mad King actually impregnated Tyrion's mom with this dwarf who is actually a bastard of Tywin, which really turns on its head all dwarves are bastards in the eyes of their father, and he literally would be a bastard of Tywin Lannister if that was the case, but I feel like that for the show to then have to do after everything with the Jon Snow mistaken identity and who's his real parents to do that again I feel like that that's going to be a 
hard thing to pivot to. Yeah, I think for the show, that's going to be really complicated. And if you're kind of lost on this and you don't know what the heck we're talking about, just look up Tyrion Targaryen on the internets. We've certainly written about it on THR before. I'm sure we've talked about it in a Game of Thrones podcast in the past at some point. Um, but it is this theory that Tyrion might secretly be a Targaryen, not just John is secretly a Targaryen. I think that would be a lot to throw at the show-only audience. So I'm inclined to think that he's not a Targaryen, at least for the show's purposes. And if it's going to happen, that it's only going to be a book thing and it's going to be one of the many differences between the books and the show, uh, assuming that the books finish. And we have no reason to doubt that they will. Josh, has the dragon has three heads come up on the TV show or is that only a book thing? Not to my memory, but I mean, they blend together so much at this point that I'd have to really go back and review the tape. But off the top of my head, I'm not sure. Okay, so for Melisandre, what happens when Davos ends up getting to Dragonstone with Jon Snow? Right. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing, too. Uh, I, th- I think that this is great. I, I spoke with Carice Van Houten this week, who plays Melisandre, and this was something that we got into, that we're kind of seeing like a more measured Melisandre, sort of a more mellowed out Melisandre. Somebody's a little bit more humble. Melisandre. Melisandre, indeed. Uh, you know, more humble than the last time we saw her. And she is somebody who is coming to Dragonstone, having just been exiled from the North, and having John and Davos both basically say to her, if you cross our paths again, Again, we will kill you. This is like your one free pass because you brought John back from the dead. And she gets to go off and she chooses to go to Dragonstone, which I think makes a lot of sense for this to be the next destination for that character. Certainly she has history with Dragonstone and certainly she's going to have an interest in Daenerys Targaryen considering what the other uh, red priests and priestesses have had interest in Danny in the past. That was brought up in season six and Danny even brings it up here that the red priests are our friends. So it makes sense that she would uh, that she would end up at Dragonstone. But she's suggesting bring Jon Snow down here and let him tell you what he has seen. And that's kind of inviting death your way, right? Like that's basically saying bring the guy who wants to kill me here and I will also probably still be here. And maybe that's not going to work out so well. Your friend and mine, Rob, Antonio Mazzaro, is uh, is very, very nervous, uh, I think, about what's going to happen if and when Danny finds out that Melisandre burned Shireen Baratheon alive because certainly Danny doesn't like it when people are mistreated, uh, when like the disenfranchised are, are disenfranchised even further and has taken some really drastic measure in the face of children being killed in the past. So I do wonder, are we starting to look at the end of Melisandre's story here? Like if you bring John and Davos down to Dragonstone, is this going to be a relatively quick stay in season seven and the end for a very, very admittedly long life for Melisandre that we could be looking at? Or is the show going to find some way to absolve Melisandre the same way that Danny forgave Varys this week? Is she going to somehow forgive Melisandre for her past transgressions? There's just no doubt in my mind that this is going to come up, the Shireen of it all. I feel like there's just no way to sidestep that. And I'm going to be very curious to see how Danny reacts to it. I hope it's realistic. I hope she has some sort of realistic response to this. Well, I do think that justice for Shireen could be a thing, but I sense that it comes more at the hands of Davos and not something that Daenerys is responsible for because 
you know, let she who has not burned people alive cast the first stone uh, <laughs> yeah. in this. And that's mixing up a lot of metaphors. But, you know, sure. we saw there's Danny, some grayscale in there. Right, yeah. How many <laughs> human lives has Danny taken with fire in her day? Not to mention, as uh, Cersei points out, you know, that she crucified all of these nice people along the way in Marine. She's really a horrible person. So I think that for Daenerys to sort of uh, get on her high dragon here about this to Melisandre about the son of, you know, Stannis Baratheon, uh, no friend of the Targaryen regime. I, I don't think that she's necessarily going to get that invested. But speaking of Danny and flaming people, she came for Varys this week, Josh. And I thought that was interesting that she was so hard on Varys all of a sudden this week about the original plot to take her out in season one from King Robert. I liked that, though. I thought that that was great. That's the thing. Like, I, you know, you even get that moment where Tyrion and Alaria are talking about what Alaria did to Marcella Baratheon. Uh, like, there's a lot of these, you know, these moments from the past that are coming up to bear in the present. And I and I love that the show isn't just completely ignoring its own history. I'm sure that there's nitpicks that you could do here and there. Like, you could find threads to tug on of, why aren't you bringing this up? Why aren't you bringing that up? But they are acknowledging some of these elephants in the room. Uh, and that was great with with Danny and Varys. We haven't had a scene of Danny and Varys before, and I think that they needed to break the ice on this issue uh, before, uh, although Tywin, I guess, technically broke ice. Uh, they have to they have to break the ice on this issue before they can move any further. Um, I will say, and I don't want to be the, the negative guy who puts this out into the universe, but I do know that there are people who are a little bit concerned about the fact that Cersei seems to have a lot of intel on what's going on with Daenerys, uh, seems to know a lot about her history. Um, you know, Maester Kyburn seems to know a thing or two about uh, what happened at the Meereen fighting pits. And so I think some people are wondering, is there a spy in the Targaryen camp? And if it's somebody who's actively in the Targaryen camp, I don't know that there would be a candidate other than Varys right now in terms of that inner circle. I mean, um, Littlefinger would say this is the most convoluted plan there ever was. I mean, how could Varys, who ultimately let Tyrion out of the black cells and, and got him into the east after he was going to be executed, then the whole time he was working for Cersei? I think it's thin. I think it's really thin. I don't think that there's a mole is the, is the most important thing I should say right up front. I think that, you know, if there is... It's probably just like, you know, Joe Schmo soldier who we're never going to see. And it's just like some like, you know, like gaggle of people who are just like sending ravens to King's Landing. Mm -hmm. And it's just, you know, the way that things leak, Rob. Uh, and some of these uh, Targaryen staffers are leaking intel to, to the Cersei regime. That's probably the likeliest scenario. But if there is some sort of shoe that's going to drop or slipper as it may be, if it were Varys, I think that it would have to be Varys because, you know, Ilaria Sand has every reason in the world to hate the land. Lannisters, you know, visceral reasons that we have seen to hate the Lannisters uh, doesn't really make sense for the Greyjoys to be working with the person who is working with their evil, tormented uncle. Uh, the Queen of Thorns would never, ever, ever work with Cersei. And I just don't think there's anyone else in that inner sanctum other than Varys, who's you know been a shifty character in the past and maybe has reasons beyond our understanding for why he would be doing what he is doing. I don't think it's likely. I just think he's the only option of the people in the inner sanctum. Unless you want to extend the net to Dario Naharis, who's like, 
you know, really, really, you know, rubbed the wrong way by the fact that he's been left behind in Mirene and wants to wants to shake things up. But I think we're done with Dario and Harris. I don't think that there's a mole, but I think if there is a double agent, I think the only person in that inner sanctum that I would think even has the slightest chance of being that person would be Varys. But I also want to couch that and say, I think the chances of that are really, really small. I think you're too busy focused on the leakers and you're not thinking about maybe that Cersei has Dragonstone bugged. Oh, that might be it. Yeah. Could be. Which (laughs) is literally when they have bugs fly in and then they fly back and then report what's going on back to King's Landing. Kyburn's working on that as well. You know what? Varys was the one with the birds, right? So they just, uh, the Lannisters have to settle for whatever winged creature that they've got. Josh, up at Winterfell, we saw another conversation between Jon and Sansa. And again, there's friction in the Stark cabinet uh, that's playing out in front of everybody. Did you feel like that Jon made a good case for why he should be heading down to Dragonstone? You know, I think that we've been a little hard on uh, on Sansa in terms of calling Jon out publicly in front of all of their constituents. I don't know that that was the greatest look back in the premiere, but this week I kind of understand that John doesn't directly clear with Sansa. I'm going to Dragonstone. I'm going to talk to Daenerys. I know that this is going to be unpopular. By the way, while I'm gone, you're queen in the north. Why not just say that? Why not just have a private moment where you're filling Sansa in on what's going on? Uh, so I, I understand Sansa's you know public frustration this week to have this like really kind of wild idea of there is this history of what happened to the Starks the last time they were summoned by the Targaryens and they answered the call. The history on that is, you know, the inciting incident of Robert's Rebellion, basically, that Lyanna had been taken by Rhaegar, had, you know, depending on how history ultimately unfolds, they ran away together. And then the Mad King basically summons uh, Ned Stark's father and Ned Stark's brother down to King's Landing and roasts them both alive. Uh, or at least one of them alive. Maybe chokes out one of the other ones. Either way, they're brutally murdered. Uh, so there's a, there's definitely reasons to not trust the, the Targaryens, as uh, Jan Royce says in this yeah. scene, and everybody else seems to agree. Like, not a great idea. But I think it's a communication issue. I feel like if, if John had, had come to Sansa first, I feel like that's probably the better play. And I also think that John did a bad job of articulating why he needed to be the person to go down to Dragonstone. I don't think it would have been the end of the world if he would have sent Davos by himself to go and be an emissary and say, look, we're dealing with a situation with the White Walkers that uh, Jon Snow, he will come, but we have a, you know, we're under attack. There's White Walkers, Night's King. It's a whole scene. Trust us on this. And is that going to be it? Danny's going to say, I'm done with you. I don't know that Davos is enough. I think like if you sent Sansa, even honestly, sure. and like you, if you coach Sansa up and be like, we need this, like it's going to come, you know, it's, it's going to land really well coming from you. Somebody who has every reason in the world to go after Cersei Lannister and then to go to Daenerys and say, Hey, I'm with you on that. We got to take out Cersei eventually, but first we've got this really big problem up north that we got to deal with. And then let's team up and take out Cersei. Like, I feel like that would work out too. I did think that it was a little bit like, 
yeah, really, John? When he goes, only a king can talk to a queen. Like, come on, you know, stop puffing your chest up so much, Jon Snow. Yeah, and I think it's definitely going to be a situation to watch with Sansa as the queen in the north uh, with Littlefinger just waiting to uh, make his next move. What's his play, Josh? I don't know. I I was uh, I was actually a little let down by the scene of Littlefinger and John in the crypt. I don't really know that there was much utility to that. We had certainly speculated, could this be one of the ways that John finds out who his true father is? Littlefinger makes no such illusions. It's really just to reinforce but that he had a real finger. smirk. He did. Real poop-eating grin on his face <laughs> after. Yeah. No, that was last week. Uh, yeah, I think, I think, I don't know. He, he certainly psyched that Sansa is in charge. And I do wonder what kind of meaningful uh, shakeups can Sansa do while John is away. And are we supposed to think that John's going to be away from Winterfell for a meaningful amount of time? And so Sansa, as Queen in the North, is going to be the status quo for the rest of the season. I'm not sure how that's going to how that's all going to shake out. But I think certainly Littlefinger has laid out what his plan is in the past. He wants to sit on the Iron Throne and he wants Sansa at his side. So this can only be good for that cause. But what his next move, what his next move is, I, I'm you know, your guess is as good as mine right now. OK, what about Arya and Nymeria? We speculated that there could be a reunion, but I don't think that anybody thought, yeah, they'll meet up and then uh, they'll just sort of say hi and then that'll be it for Nymeria. Yeah, and that was it, at least as far as it goes right now. You know, Arya, first off, runs into Hot Pie, which was fantastic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and special shout out to that to that cut from uh, oh, yeah. Sam cutting the grayscale and then cutting directly into the into the chicken pot pie at the end. That was really, really amazing. I, I think Arya meeting Nymeria was expected to be a little bit more of an event. And maybe now Nymeria is back in the mix and she's going to be, you know, we've got yet another ferocious direwolf back in the mix. Certainly we need as many of those as we as we can get, because there's only two living direwolves from the original episode at the very least. Um, But it was quick. It was it was a flash in the pan Uh, and she was there and then she was gone. And that's not you and all of that, which I didn't love that line. That felt like a little navel gazy for Game of Thrones. Like Arya really remembers that deep cut reference that she said that one time to Ned that's not me. It felt like a little, a little uh, horn hilled in there. She horn hilled in. Yeah, uh, no, I'm glad you said that because uh, I really, I did not get that. It I was know, confusing. It was very confusing. I, I know you wrote about the showrunners talking about what that meant, but I really feel like without that nugget of what that's supposed to be, I don't think anybody gets that. I completely agree. And that's the kind of thing that causes me to raise my eyebrows when we reach endgame territory for, uh, any beloved show. Uh, certainly people who listen to post show recaps regularly know how much I love lost. Uh, and that was the kind of thing that really rubbed me wrong in the final season of lost where they would do sort of like this, you know, victory lap of looking back at some of the things that they've done and just like kind of having these references on the show that are really just, uh, you know, patting yourself on the back a little bit and just like looking back for really no reason other than to say like, Hey, remember when we did that thing? So this kind of felt a little bit like that to me. I do think that there is some resonance to Arya and Nymeria not getting together. And it does make me a little concerned about Arya's fate ultimately, which is, you know, an alarm we've been slowly raising here uh, and maybe, you know, starting to go at an alarmingly fast rate. We're raising the alarm here is like, should we be worried about Arya Stark long? 
long-term. I know Steven is very worried about Arya long-term, does not think she'll survive the series. Uh, you and I were maybe a little more bullish on Arya surviving, but I'm starting to wonder if, you know, this is, is this partially a metaphor of like, Arya can't ever really fully go home. You know, maybe she actually physically gets to Winterfell. Maybe she finally makes it back. But has she been through too much? Has she done too much? Has she killed too many people? Has she lost too much of herself to ever truly fully be a Stark again, to really be Arya Stark. And who even is Arya Stark? You know, she was such a young child when this started that her identity now is such a mismatch of, of, of things that it's, it's hard to imagine who is the true, pure Arya and can that person ever really be happy. And I wonder if Nymeria not going back with her and if the dire wolf is supposed to kind of be some sort of external expression of the, of the character that they belong to or were paired up with initially is there something there? Is there something to the idea of Nymeria just running off into the woods to never be seen again? And does that tell us something about what's coming Arya's way? All right. Coming up uh, next week, our episode is The Queen's Justice. I know you do a uh, real uh, thorough examination of uh, what's coming up in the trailer. Anything that you've seen that you have as a takeaway? I don't think that there's really anything that they're giving away in the trailer other than, you know, some of the events that are going to take place. Certainly John and Danny, it seems like they're going to meet. Uh, Please, God, don't let that just be like the final five seconds of the episode. And then we have to wait until episode four for that full meeting. But I don't think that'll be the case. I think next week is going to be the John and Danny episode. And that is exciting. I am I am very pumped about that. Cannot wait to see how that shakes out. Um, Also, looks like we're going to get the Casterly Rock battle. I would say, yeah, uh, it, it looks like that in the trailer. It looks like you see the Unsullied are, are fighting against warriors in Lannister Red. Uh, so I think that there is going to be something to that. I think finally we're going to see Casterly Rock, which is maybe more exciting to me than it than it sounded to, to you and Steven on uh, on the Sunday night show. I'm really pumped to see Casterly Rock. It's a place we still haven't no, even I'm visited in the book. It. So yeah. it'll be good. I mean, I, what does it mean like in the grand scheme of things? It means another battle scene. And these have been pretty fun to watch. So sure. I'm okay. I'm okay with it in terms of uh, in terms of that. But I, I think that with the uh, with the Lannister side of the of the war having such a big victory this week in um, in their in their victory over Danny's fleet with Euron destroying Yara's fleet, I think that you're probably going to see a victory for Team Targaryen here. I think it would really what would be the point if Tyrion is sending all these people over to Casterly Rock only for them to just get shattered to bits? Like I feel like there's no reason to have that story on the show other than to take Casterly Rock and really torment Cersei and Jaime with that. So I would expect that this is going to go the Targaryen's way next week. Josh, the title, The Queen's Justice, which queen do you think the title is referring to? Is it Probably Cersei? Both. Is it Danny, Or could it be Sansa? Oh, it could be Sansa. That's interesting. Yeah, I mean, she's queen in the north right now. Uh, Got a lot I, of queens ho- in the mix. There's a lot of queens in the mix. The only, the only prediction that I'll make is uh, I think that we'll see... I think Danny will have to make a choice about Melisandre. So that would be potentially the queen's justice and how that's delivered to Melisandre. Uh, but I'm, I'm, I feel even sure that we'll probably see the rest of the sand snakes go. Uh, I think that Alaria sand and her daughter, 
uh, I think that that will probably be the Queen's justices. Cersei will order their executions, and I bet that we'll see that. Okay. All right. Good just stuff. Just a prediction, just a hunch. Let's see. We'll see if it works out. Josh, what are you writing the rest of the week on THR? Uh, got some more interviews that are in the works, hopefully speaking with uh, Pilo Asbach, who plays Euron Greyjoy, so I would be Ooh. very excited to, to pick his brain. Uh, Natalie Emanuel, I'm hopefully speaking with soon as well uh, to talk about everything that went on with her and Missande and, and Grey Worm, which was very sweet, very touching. In, a lot in many of touching. Ways. Lots of touching. Uh, and uh, yeah, so we'll, we'll have that uh, and, and we'll see what else we, we've got going on on THR this week. But excited for next week. Next right. week is the one I'm, I'm really pumped for. Hopefully, if we could get Theon and Grey Worm together, if, if they could just like uh, share a pint of ale, I, I think that Grey Worm could cheer up Theon. You think so? It's like it's. I think so. so. I think he can make Theon feel better. <laughs> like he can pump him up a little bit. Like, hey, look, things look bad now, but trust me, things can get better. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Don't be so down. Yeah, maybe, maybe that's Theon's next move. Maybe he'll uh, he'll show up and uh, and hang out with Grey Worm. Maybe, maybe that's, that's what that's where they're gonna find Theon. That yeah, you're gonna see gonna uh, the Unsullied as they're sailing to Casterly Rock. Then they pick up Theon, and that's when they start to really bro down. Or Theon's just gonna be waiting at Casterly Rock, just like hiding behind a bush, and be like, Grey Worm, come here. Yeah, and we need to compare notes. Like I'm having a real crisis right now. Yeah, Grey Joy, Grey Worm. I think it's meant oh, to be. Writes itself. Writes itself. Yeah. Okay. Of course, you can follow Josh Wiggler on Twitter. He is at Round Howard. I'm at Rob Sesterino. Make sure you come back for our feedback podcast and send in your questions. We're going to record that on Wednesday, early afternoon, Eastern time. That's GOT at postshowrecaps.com or postshowrecaps.com slash voicemail. We'll also look at your comments from postshowrecaps.com. And you can subscribe to the podcast, postshowrecaps.com slash GOT iTunes. Josh, anything else? No, that's it for me. All right. Looking forward to the feedback show. Take care, everybody. Have a good one. Bye. Bye.